One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Anna Solomon, author of The Little Bride, Leaving Lucy Pear, and co-editor of Labor Day, True Birth Stories by Today's Best Women Writers. She has also written for the New York Times Magazine, the Boston Globe, and Slate. Her latest novel, Leaving Lucy Pear, focuses on young B. Haven, who in 1917 sneaks out of her uncle's home on Cape Ann, Massachusetts, and leaves her newborn baby in a pear orchard for a family of thieves to find. Ten years later, B. meets Emma, the woman who is raising the daughter she left, named Lucy. Set during Prohibition in a time of rampant xenophobia, Leaving Lucy Pear explores questions of class, freedom, motherhood, mental health, politics, and family. We started the interview discussing Solomon's penchant for writing historical novels. I can say, and I've thought a lot about this, that I think that one of the reasons that I have been drawn in my longer work so far to history is that in some ways I think that placing something in the past and the way the stories have come to me, there's been a way in which I've, it's allowed me to allow myself to write more dramatically and to have more like big things happen than I think I would have felt comfortable writing in the present. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I think I'll always stick with the past in that way. But I think it was for me as a, someone who had written short stories that were always sort of straining to be longer so writing novels was not sort of a, a leap for me in terms of like, I, I meant to only write small, but it was a leap, obviously, in terms of, you know, what is the action that's going to carry this, the length of it. And, and I think for me, setting it in the past really helped me feel like this world was different enough that I could go really big. 
So Leaving Lucy Pear is such a large book in scope and in ambition. And I'm just wondering about the kernel of the story. How did you come up with this story and want that to be the setting to explore not just motherhood or mothers who abandon their children, but anarchism and prohibition and women's roles and the right to vote and that sort of thing. (laughs) So I'll start with the seeds of the story and then kind of, I think that will lead me there. Um, There were two kind of main catalysts for how this story formed in my mind. And one was a, a history book about Cape Ann that my stepfather handed to me one day. And he said, I think you might find some things in here interesting. And there was this passage that was a about a woman, like a wealthy Bostonian who summered on Cape Ann and who had been there and had been suffering from a, quote, nervous disorder. And there had been this new whistle buoy, which is like a shrieking buoy to, to, you know, um, warn sailors and fishermen of rocks and such. And this whistle buoy was, was aggravating it more. She, of course, knew somebody high up at the Navy, went to them, and they had the whistle buoy removed. And you know, her, her nervous disorder was much better. And, um, oh, and then there was this sort of passage. Oh, and then the next summer she returned to Cape Ann and by then she had grown married and her nervous disorder was, was totally fine because she had gotten married presumably. And, um, she said that the whistleblower could be put back in. So anyway, I found this like hilarious and disturbing on all sorts of levels. And then, and it also got sort of this plot wheel turning for me, which was, well, what if, you know, when they took the whistleblower out, there was a consequence you know, there was a shipwreck, there was a, you know, what if, what if she was then responsible for something that happened because of her request? And it also stirred, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in women's mental health and hysteria and the history of the treatment of hysteria. And so that was sort of one piece of it. And then there was also this, um, when I was a kid, we grew, I grew up in this house above near the water and we had this field that had a few pear trees in it. And there Every year, there was this point every summer where right around when they were becoming ripe, where they were all just gone suddenly. And my father would sort of had these ideas about some of them very funny about how they left, like there were big giraffes in the field, et cetera, you know, what had happened to them. But the thing that stuck with me was that he had this idea about there being some family who must have needed the pears in some way. So that kind of also sparked my imagination. I cannot tell you exactly how those two things came together in my mind. And as you know now after reading the book, and I won't, I won't put any spoilers in here, you know, the thing about the whistlebuoy runs through the book, but in terms of the actual sort of plot point, it certainly doesn't start the book out. It's not, um, you know, I had imagined that being like the beginning, and I had imagined there being a lot more of the book set, for instance, in, you know, a mental institution, which really none of it is now. And so, the, you know, where I began isn't where I went. But in terms of all of the, you know, the scope and you have, as you said, you know, prohibition in there and women's suffrage and Sacco and Vanzetti, who were the Italian-American anarchists who were executed that summer of 1927 after a, a trial that is notoriously corrupt. Basically, I think that the time period just led me there. You know, as I, I, I always start writing as I start researching. And so the two things kind of weave together in what I hope, you know, for me is a very organic manner and what I hope reads as one. Um, I didn't set out with a sort of agenda, like I have to tick, I have to address this and this and this, but you know, you set something in 1927 and these, this is what was going on in the world. And, and this is how that world related to where my characters were at 
in their both emotional and dramatic lives. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anna Solomon, author of The Little Bride and Leaving Lucy Pear. Part of the impetus for B to give Lucy away, and this was wholly her her choice, Her if it was up to her parents. Basically, she gets pregnant and goes to an aunt and uncle's away from the city, it's sort of this hidden pregnancy. Her parents want her to give it to this orphanage that seems stale and maybe kind of mean, and she goes out on her own in the pear orchard and leaves it because she knows that this family comes and picks pears when they're ripe and will pick her up, she's assuming, and, and raise her. And the reason she does that is because her plan for life was both social engineered by Lillian and her and her class that she was going to go to school and she was going to be a musician and she had all these things that were coming next. But the irony of it is that nothing of none of that turned out that the impetus to give away the baby didn't make her life perfect. It actually unraveled her. Yeah, I mean, as you said, she's, you know, she's bound for, she's supposed to go to Radcliffe, um, start school at Radcliffe like a month after this. And um, she has this sort of destiny foretold in a way, set out before her that feels like the only one that she can have. And she also really wants it on some level. Um, She wants to go to college and she wants to be a pianist. um, And she also wanted, which I think is really important in this, to marry her cousin, Julian, <laughs> who she's in love with, and he was in love with her. And um, her becoming pregnant stopped that relationship from being able to, to move forward, which it would have at this time, I should say, um, just in terms of the sort of cousin thing that could have been not necessarily something that they would have made, tried to like draw a lot of attention to, but it would have, it would have, it would have gone over okay. And so there's this incredible heartbreak and loss in that. And um, I think that the decision to leave Lucy feels like both what she wants to do and what she needs to do and something that she doesn't have, doesn't actually have a decision to make around. I don't think that she, you know, she does think about what it would be to bring the baby home. And it, it's clear that it's not really not an option um, but what she doesn't know and can't know is that the impact of, of the loss of leaving um, Lucy is going to be tremendous on her, that she can't let go of it um, and that she can't go start Radcliffe as an 18-year-old girl like all the other 18-year-old girls because she isn't anymore. You know, she's had this, like, you know, probably, I think, well, not probably, she's had one of the most transforming things that can happen in a life happen to her. And she's no longer capable of, of being there in the same way that they are. And she's no longer um, capable of playing piano in the way that she was. And um, so it's, so yes, yeah, so she gets driven into this, she has a breakdown, um, which then, as you said, you know, sets off, um, sets her on a totally different course and one that she didn't imagine. And one that's really about, I mean, she becomes very involved in the dry movement, um, which is really about her own repression and the fact that, you know, the first sexual encounter she ever had in her life led to this total disaster. Um, And so there's a way in which her sort of coming out as a, a leader in the dry movement and champion of abstinence um, 
is very much a sort of like cry to herself. Um, and, and it's certainly very ironic, um, but I kind of think that there's often a lot of irony behind a lot of trumpeting. <laughs> I'm interested in the way in which I think most people have various and sometimes conflicting motivations behind the philanthropic work that they do or the seemingly philanthropic work that they do. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. I was thinking about, you know, in a broader sense of the nature of motherhood. And this happens in the world all the time that parents, mothers feel maybe that they can't raise their kids and they give them up for adoption for a thousand different reasons. But that each case is different. And for her... Her nature, she couldn't fight this nature that even if she wasn't equipped and might not have been a great mom for Lucy, the the natural order of her motherhood was disrupted. And to me, I read that as, you know, leading to her whole life of, of having a nervous disorder. And I'm wondering if you can talk about her nervous disorder and writing about that and researching that and how you think not only it affected her, but the characters around her. This might be an arguable thing to say and, and potentially a controversial thing to say, but in, in my mind, B needs to fall apart. It's like the only thing she can do. It's, I, I think that the line between her, in fact, breaking down without her own permission and breaking down because it's the only way to get the attention that she needs in the very vulnerable place she's in, in, in this sort of mourning and grief and confusion about what has happened, is a very difficult one to parse. And I try to sort of express that at different points in the book, which is sort of, she doesn't feel like she can speak, you know, so she has to cry. She doesn't feel like she can tell anybody her story, so she winds up hyperventilating. It's like, which isn't to say that it's not real either, because it is real. But it's also, I think there's a way in which she's, she goes there willingly, because, again, because it's her only choice, because there's this silence that's been created around the fact that she, I mean, she's not supposed to, nobody knows that she, that she, that this happened to her, except for her family. So she goes to this new place, this school, and she can't tell anybody her history. And I think that as much as the thing that happened itself is what causes her to spiral into this breakdown. And I, I haven't had experiences like this in this degree, but I've had very intense experiences 
where something's happening, you know, physically in my body that I get worried about. And then it sort of gets worse very much from my worry. And then I really start to freak out about it. And there's this moment where something turns into panic, where I've experienced that there's a sort of way in which it is easier to like fall down on the floor and freak out than it is to kind of hold it together and try to speak through this thing that doesn't make any sense. To try to articulate it in a rational way, what isn't rational and what people aren't supposed to know about or don't believe is, is tremendously hard, even for like a mature and articulate person, let alone an 18-year-old who's been infantilized for most of her life. You know, so I think that for me, I was really interested in that. And I did do you know, a lot of research, a lot of research into sort of both the actual experience of women who were having, quote, nervous disorders or suffering from, quote, hysteria, and also into the way in which they were treated and seen and viewed. And it's actually hard in a way to separate those things to a degree. I mean, we do have first-person accounts, and we have amazing stories like, you know, the yellow wallpaper. But the most of the literature, and, and you know, and it's fascinating in its own way, comes from the male perspective still. And so, although Elaine Showalter is a great example of someone who's written a tremendous amount about this from a, in a scholarly point of view, certainly a female perspective on it, but not from the experience itself. So there was a lot of a lot of research and a, a lot of just deep imagining and kind of extending my own experience beyond a very kind of banal. And I do this a lot with all of my writing. You know, something that I've experienced in a very subtle way and kind of blowing that up. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anna Solomon, author of The Little Bride and Leaving Lucy Pear. Our interview was recorded via Skype. This isn't the first time that you've written about abandoning children. So what is it about that that really fascinates you? On On a writerly level, right, and on a plot level, There is something inherently fascinating, compelling, useful about an orphan, about orphaning and about what happens then. But on a personal level, you know, again, this is sort of like a blowing up of something in myself, which is about ambivalence and is about my feeling in becoming a mother of both all of the joy that it's brought me and also the cost there's a lot of loss in it. You know, I think people actually, I think there is more conversation today about it that's open. And I think people are more, you know, obviously there have been books called Bad Mother and there have been, you know, there's sort of a way in which people now I think are allowed to talk lightly to some degree about that ambivalence and even about their like more bitter thoughts at times toward their children. But it, you know, the actual abandonment of a child is still, by a mother in particular, is still sort of the ultimate taboo. You know, I I spend a lot of time in my head imagining things, even when I'm with my children, which is sort of this very benign kind of abandonment, but one that I get called out on, you know, by them (laughs) and one that itself has its costs. I mean, this is the thing about it's like the degrees, right? Whether you abandon your child and actually leave them forever and whether you, in fact, are neglectful at times because you're just really occupied in your head it can all generate all sorts of guilt. I mean, those are completely different things. And I'm not comparing them so much as as articulating them as different degrees of the same impulse. Um, And I really get that impulse. And so I think that, you know, it's a way for me to explore that and play with it and and not do it. (laughs) It's not something I've ever thought about actually 
actually doing. Like I cannot imagine, well, I can imagine doing it. That's why I wrote it. I imagined doing it, but I cannot conceive of myself doing it. And so I've conceived of someone else doing it. What have your kids called you out on? My older one, who's eight in particular, just on, you know, like, pay attention. I just said something to you, you know, not paying attention, just being in my thoughts. And at times, like listening in this sort of way of like hearing her words, but not actually listening to them because I'm thinking about a character or I'm thinking about or I'm thinking about like what the, what to cook for dinner. You know, it's not always so high-minded as thinking about one of my characters. I remember my own mother saying to me at some point, this is when I got a little, I wasn't like young anymore. I don't remember the context in which she said this to me, but it was about her not paying attention, a conversation we were having. And she said, well, you know, I'm just sort of, you know, I'm, I'm a vessel. I'm here and I'm here and you can just keep talking to me, but that doesn't mean that I need to always be listening. <laughs> and... I remember this was before I became a mother and being sort of like irate when she, you know, well, that's terrible, but I sort of get it now too. I mean, sometimes you know, there's only like, there is, there is a lot of time as a mother where you do feel that like you're just being like thrown things, like you're just sort of there as this container and lots of things are being thrown at you. And sometimes it seems like the more, like most important is just to be there for people to throw things into and at, and not necessarily to like pay that much attention. <laughs> That might sound awful, but I think it's kind of, I think it, there's some truth in it. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about this. I mean, it's such a great question and I could probably, I could probably find like a thousand different passages, but I decided to turn to Alice Munro, who's one of my very favorite writers and read this passage from The Beggar Maid, which is an early, it's hard to say whether it's a collection of stories or a kind of novel in interweaving stories, but it's brilliant. And in the first story, which is called Royal Beatings, there's this section where Rose, she's the girl in the story, is sort of overhearing her father speaking in his shop. He's speaking nonsense. So she hears him saying macaroni, pepperoni, botticelli, beans. What could that mean? Rose used to repeat such things to herself. She could never ask him. The person who spoke these words and the person who spoke to her as her father were not the same, though they seemed to occupy the same space. It would be the worst sort of taste to acknowledge the person who was not supposed to be there. It would not be forgiven. Just the same, she loitered and listened. The cloud-capped towers, she heard him say once, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces. That was like a hand clapped against Rose's chest, not to hurt, but astonish her, to take her breath away. She had to run then. She had to get away. She knew that was enough to hear. And besides, what if he caught her? It would be terrible. This was something the same as bathroom noises. Flo had saved up and had a bathroom put in, but there was no place to put it except in a corner of the kitchen. The door did not fit. The walls were only beaver board. The result was that even the tearing of a piece of toilet paper, the shifting of a haunch was audible to those working or talking or eating in the kitchen. They were all familiar with each other's nether voices, not only in their more explosive moments, but in their intimate sighs and growls and pleas and statements, and they were almost prudish people, so no one ever seemed to hear or be listening, and no reference was made. The person creating the noises in the bathroom was not connected with the person who walked out. I've always loved that passage. It stayed with me, just thinking about like the way in which Monroe here both sets up this relationship between Rose and her father, but also really broadens it to be about the relationship 
within this family and the way, the dynamic and, and the silence, really. I'm always writing around the idea of silence and what is said and what is hidden and not spoken and not allowed to be spoken. And then the way in which she jumps from, you know, this moment where she's listening outside his shop to, this was something the same as bathroom noises. And then we get this picture of this bathroom in their kitchen. And, you know, we get so much from that. Every sentence is doing so many things at once in terms of the physical space. You get class very clear where they're at in a class way. You get this emotional dynamic. So everything is more than, than one thing. It's not like there's just an embarrassing noise coming from the bathroom. She's just unspooling that and unspooling it. I mean, I feel like at any given moment in my day, if you asked me what I'd want to read, like I would just always be happy to sit and read Alice Munro because she's always connecting the physical and the internal and pointing out the ways in which the tangible dynamics of our lives represent and sort of repeat the internal ones. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anna Solomon, author of The Little Bride and Leaving Lucy Pear. Can you read something that you wrote? It could be something that was difficult or something that changed a lot from the first draft. I was going to read this paragraph away into the book because it was something that changed a lot. And I actually spoke to this a little bit earlier in the interview in terms of the way in which I had had these kind of scenes playing out in this mental institution, which was based on a hospital, a well-known hospital outside Boston called McLean's, which I visited, but I call Fainwright in the book. So you hear it referenced here. And basically, B is sitting on the porch with her cousin Rose. Interesting, Rose. Again, I didn't make the connection that there's a Rose in what I just read and a Rose in this. But She's sitting on the porch with her cousin Rose, and Rose is asking her about sex, which is something B is very uncomfortable talking about. And Rose is also giving her spiked lemonade to drink, which B never drinks because she's, you know, a leader in the, in the prohibition movement. I've been reading Freud, Rose said. You're not so sucked into the temperance vortex that you haven't heard of him, right? This was why B couldn't complain about the lemonade, which was rapidly loosening her mind. Yes, I've heard of Freud. I've read him, actually. In fact, Freud had been read to her by a fellow patient whose name B couldn't remember now, a poet who said that Freud was the future, that the Europeans knew it, but Fainwright was stuck in the last century with its Swedish exercise machines and pummeling shower cages and ice wraps. B remembered little of the passage now. She remembered mostly that the poet was a tall, handsome woman with dark, billowing eyebrows whom B found surprisingly beautiful, even alluring, and she remembered the memory cut like a scythe through the dense field of all she had forgotten. One doctor saying to another, Don't you see how centrally Ms. Haven's poor appetite functions in this case? Wouldn't it make sense that a girl who wishes to repress her memory of her first sexual encounter, an encounter against her will, would attempt to rid herself of womanly flesh? She remembered his pride, his sweaty face, how he had swaggered out of the conference room without looking at her. She was humiliated now, remembering this. I should have said Ms. Haven is B herself. That's her maiden name is Haven. And one reason I read that passage is because, you know, you asked about passages where a lot had changed. And I was just thinking about how I had, you know, not just a few pages, but probably 20 or more pages in the book where I played out these sort of really elaborate scenes in the mental institution. And that little nugget you get of that doctor talking to the other doctors it was like this whole inquisition where there was B and there was a, there were two other patients and they each had their own disorders and like 
And because I was just so fascinated by all of this. And it, I think it was, you know, based on what my readers said, they were like, well, these, this is really interesting, but like, this is not helping the book. And it's, you know, most of it's just not relevant. And it was one of those situations in which it wasn't a matter of sort of like, well, cut it in half. It was like, no, it just needs to go. And there were just, you know, a very few kind of snippets from those long, long scenes that wound up coming into the book as reference points and as just sort of more informationally. When I say informationally, I mean both in terms of plot and emotional information, but that the way in which that gets expressed in the final draft and how, you know, concentrated it is compared to where where I started. Where do you write? I don't, I don't have space in my apartment, but I write it at somewhere called the Brooklyn Writers Space, which is a wonderful communal space that was created maybe, in, I think in 2005, maybe, maybe 2008. And, you know, you pay a monthly fee and you go in and, you know, there are cubicles basically and you don't have a reserved one. You go in each day and find one and sit down and do your work and it's it's totally silent in there. And outside there's a, you know, a shared kind of kitchen common area where people can talk. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? For the most part, I feel like I have so little time to write that I don't experience that very often. Like I need to stop writing now. But usually it's something physical. I go and I walk or I work out or I go rock climbing or I do yoga or I take a shower if like there's if I really don't have time to do anything else. Um, And something that just sort of shakes me up and returns me to my body and settles my brain. And, um, you know, I don't know, you maybe have experienced often in those activities sort of toward the end of one of them, an answer that I've been looking for in the writing kind of comes to me. But I can never be looking for it. <laughs> I always have to have forgotten that I'm looking for it. Um, but there is something really magical about the about physical activity in that way, and how it kind of it just shakes loose these kind of recognitions that I that I was trying really hard to get to when I was sitting down. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have two or three very close readers who I usually are the first people who see my work. Um, and who, I mean, I sort of have a little bit of a bigger group of people, but there are just a couple who kind of see things at the beginning for that reality check of like, is this a book? Is this something you want to read? What should I be aware of? And I feel incredibly lucky to have them. Um, you know, they're people that I've met either through my graduate writing programs or through other kind of writing conferences and and such. And I feel like if you sort of picking up one deep writer friend at each of those moments along the way, and you wind up with even like even a few, it's just such a gift. How have you dealt with rejection? Um, (laughs) I was thinking about this. I was like, I I don't remember because I think I probably block it out because, (laughs) because why not block it out? But you know, I think that it's hard. I'm not, I'm not great at it. I think that it's harder when I, it's been harder when I have a reason to actually hope for something. Like I get encouraging words about something and then find out I didn't get in or really hard has been, I've been rejected a couple of times from artist colonies where I had been before, which feels like a real kind of stab in the heart. Cause it, it's not just about the work itself, but also like, I thought I belonged in this community. And I think the best thing I've learned is to let myself feel bad and not sort of like be like, oh, you shouldn't be disappointed or, you know, not try to shut the feeling down, but like let myself feel bad and wallow in it a little and then just get back to the work. That's always what has to happen is just returning to the work because that's what I love and what why I do it. And, you know, I can never sort of immediately do that because there does have to be some like head on wallowing. <laughs> and what is your favorite word? I don't have a favorite word, but I was I was thinking about this because you asked me to think about it. And 
potentially totally randomly, but if I had to, if I had to pick one, and it seems like I do, I really love the word perambulate. For the sound? Yeah. Well, it's also just funny. Like, it's such a funny thing to say, to say walk. <laughs> like, like, such a big, uh, such a big word with so many syllables to say if all you need to say is, is walk. I mean, it's a particular kind of walking, which is why we need the word, I guess. But um, yeah, I just kind of love it. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Anna Solomon, author of The Little Bride and Leaving Lucy Pear. This interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The First Draft music is produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>